Isn't that song pretty? John Lennon, Yoko Ono, 1971. According to Rolling Stone in 2004, that song, Imagine, rated as number three of the greatest songs of all time. Boatload of awards performed by over 200 artists since. Madonna, Stevie Wonder, Joan Baez, Elton John, Diana Ross, Allison. Apparently, ever since 2005, they play it before dropping the ball in Times Square. And about six days into the COVID quarantine, Gal Gadot, you know, Wonder Woman, she and a bunch of her friends, Will Ferrell, Sarah Silverman, Jimmy Fallon, Natalie Portman, Mark Ruffalo, a bunch of others, they sang a bunch of pieces of it and stitched it in to get together and posted it on Instagram as a gift to all the rest of us stuck in quarantine. I guess they chose it because a lot of people think it's a great song. I hope you listen to words, right? Imagine there's no heaven. Is that cool? What do you think? It's easy if you try, apparently. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Guess I can figure out why no hell sounds appealing, but above us only sky, I suppose that means no God, right? Cool. Imagine there's no countries. Not hard to do. What do you think? No countries. Because then there'll be no, nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too, because apparently we're part of the problem, right? Boundaries, politics, religion. Eliminate the things that you might die for. Get rid of all that. And maybe we could all get along. Imagine all the people living a life in peace because flags and crosses, tribes and their gods just cause us to be uncivilized, apparently. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. No kidding. Someday, he says, I hope you'll join us and the world will be as one. I don't think I can imagine a song more stupid. Get rid of God. Get rid of all accountability to any all-powerful, all-wise, perfectly holy, perfectly just God. Get rid of this heaven and hell stuff. So everybody can just do what's right in their own eyes. <laughs> and the world will be better, right? Are you insane? You don't have to imagine. To some degree, that model's been tried. Lenin, Stalin, Mao. There are really just two options, guys, each of which is going to take you down a very different path. There either is a God or there's not. Really? Nothing in between. More specifically, there is an all-powerful, all-wise, perfectly holy, perfectly just, yet astoundingly loving God who for some crazy reason cares about little old you and little old me, the God revealed to us in and by Jesus. Well, there's not. And a boatload of people hope there's not. And actually believe that eradicating such superstitious nonsense will make people better. Right? About 40 years ago, Carl Sagan published a magnificent book called Cosmos. I loved it. Great book. Spun out into a miniseries on PBS. One of the most watched PBS miniseries ever. Great book. Great series. But I'll never forget a couple of the opening lines. Sagan starts out by telling us that this is going to be a book simply about science. No religion, no philosophy. And then he says this. He says, the cosmos is all that is, all that ever was, and all that ever will be. Which is not science. That's philosophy. That's religion. 
It's not something science can say. Some scientists do, not all. In fact, in the history of science, most of the greatest scientists were Christians. Many of the greatest scientists today are Christians. But some are like Sagan. He kept saying stuff like this. He says, for me, it's far better to grasp the universe as it really is than to persist in any kind of delusion like God, however satisfying and reassuring. Or this one, he says, I'd love to believe that when I die, I'll live again, that some thinking, feeling, remembering part of me is going to continue. But as much as I want to believe that, despite the ancient and worldwide cultural traditions that assert an afterlife, I know of nothing to suggest that it is any more than wishful thinking. Kind of like that song, Imagine. I thought this one was pretty funny. This one is just funny. A celibate clergy is an especially good idea because it tends to suppress any hereditary propensity towards fanaticism. <laughs> Think on that one. That's cute. But this one's confrontational. He says, if God really is omnipotent and omniscient, then why didn't he start the universe out in the first place so it would come out the way he wants? Because he can't like the way that it has come out, right? At least here. Why is this God constantly repairing and complaining? No, there's one thing the Bible makes clear. The biblical God is a sloppy manufacturer. He is not good at design, and he's not good at execution. He'd be out of business if there was any competition. Sagan writes really, really well. So some are not impressed by our God. Some don't buy it. One we believe is this all-powerful, all-wise, perfectly holy, perfectly just, yet astoundingly loving God who created everything on purpose. Still holds it in his hands. So on the one side, they vote against God. On the other side, in the beginning, God. Just there. Out there, in here. And those who wrote the Bible never argue for the existence of God. They just assume it. Because no one in that world was pushing back, really. In the world of the Bible, most everyone assumed that there was some kind of God, not everyone, but the overwhelming majority, which I suppose is why you really don't find any arguments for the existence of God in the Bible. They didn't have to convince anyone that some kind of God existed. They just had to explain who the real God is what the real God is like, what the real God is up to. Because it looked like the real God keeps tinkering with our story. In fact, with Jesus, it kind of looks like the real God kind of takes over our story. So if you read the prophets, you don't find them trying to convince any people that God existed. Instead, they're trying to get people to focus on the real God rather than the puny wannabes that we always seem to put in his place. And if you read the disciples of Jesus, guys like Matthew, John, Peter, and Paul, they're not out there trying to convince people that there's a God. They didn't have to. They were trying to get people to realize that the real God had showed up in our story in Jesus. In fact, there's a fascinating scene in the book of Acts. The apostle Paul is in Athens, and he gets this opportunity to talk to some of their most esteemed citizens. And Paul says, Men of Athens... I notice that you are very religious in every way. 
because I was walking along, I saw one of your many shrines and one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. Well, this God that you worship without knowing, he's the one I'm telling you about. He's the real God who made the world and everything in it. And he goes on to tell them about Jesus. He didn't have to convince him there was a God. He just had to explain who the real God is, what the real God is like, what the real God is up to. In fact, I don't know if you realize this, but oddly enough, in the world of the New Testament, <clears throat> we Christians were the atheists. We were branded as atheists because we wouldn't acknowledge any other God except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Bottom line, guys, in the history of the world, there have been very, very few actual theoretical atheists. It's just kind of understood, just kind of hardwired. Kind of makes sense to most of us that there must be some kind of a designer, some kind of a creator to whom we're going to be held accountable eventually. In fact, I think that's one of God's fingerprints, that nearly universal awareness that there must be a God out there of some sort, someone who has left his fingerprints on creation, someone who has planted in every single one of us some sense of right and wrong. So the Apostle Paul says, what may be known about God is plain to us, because God has made it plain to us. For ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, we've seen Him being understood from what He's made so that we're without excuse. Even in today's world, guys, even today, I know the pushback is growing, but I dug around a little bit last week and found out that best guess is there may be 500 million atheists in our world. Which sounds like a lot, but that'd be about 7% of us. With big chunks of atheists in Russia and China, although there are boatloads of Christians in both those places too. According to the Pew Research Group in 2009, about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, they estimated about 4% of us Americans are atheists, about 1 in 25. Another 5% are agnostic. Now, those numbers are quite a bit higher now, but still the overwhelming majority of us still believe there must be some kind of God. So maybe I need to give you some definitions. We've got atheists, we've got agnostics, and we've got theists. A theist is just someone who believes in God, right? Theos simply means God in Greek. So a theist is a person who believes in God. The Atheist is someone who doesn't. I mean, the A in front is a negative, like amoral, without morals, or apathetic, someone without pathos, without passion. Atheist means someone who doesn't believe in a God, no God. An agnostic, in this context, doesn't know if there's a God. Gnosis is the word in Greek for knowledge, to know. And so agnostic means I don't know. In this context, that's what an atheist or an agnostic would say about God. I don't know. Now, in reality, you can actually break it down a little bit further because I think there are two different kinds of atheists. There are the pure atheists, the theoretical atheists, who simply do not believe that there is a God. They don't buy it. 
They don't just doubt it, they just don't buy it, which requires quite a leap of faith. That's what we talked about last week. In fact, I believe that it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a theist. But there are also what I would call functional atheists or practical atheists. These are guys who believe in God, sort of. They just don't live like it. They believe in God, I suppose, but God doesn't matter much. They don't really care. Believe it or not, about every church in this church, we've got practical atheists. So you've got two different kinds of atheists. The radical atheists, the practical atheists, and two different kinds of theists. Some theists just believe that there must be some kind of God, just not the God of Jesus. And then there are those of us who believe that there really has to be an all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly just, perfectly holy, and yet unbelievably loving God who gives us a peek at who he is and what he wants through Jesus. Now, bottom line, boil it right down to the very bottom, there's only two options. There's either a God or not. Jesus was right or he's not. And if there is a God, and if God really is all-powerful, all-wise, perfectly pure, perfectly just, stunningly loving, if God really is the God of Jesus, then anyone who blows him off is an absolute fool. And if there's not such a God, if Jesus was wrong, then those of us who claim to be Jesus followers are absolute fools. Right? And that's what the Bible says, and it's dead on right. There are a couple of verses in the Psalms that don't actually mean quite what they say, literally. But Psalm 14 opens up with these words. It says, the fool, the fool says in his heart, the fool says, there's no God. Strong word. Foolish, stupid, irrational. To live as if there is no God, if there really is a God, he says. It'd be foolish to live like you could choose your own right and wrong if there really is a God to whom one day you will be held accountable. Right? It'd be foolish to live as if there is no heaven and no hell if there really is a God who will one day determine your eternal destiny. It'd be foolish to treat people like they can be used and abused and discarded if there is a God who believes that every single person is valuable, bearing his image. Be fool to think that you can do whatever you want with whatever you can accumulate if there really is a God. And everything that we think is ours is actually his. And if there really is a God, the God revealed in and through Jesus, it'd be stupid not to wrap your life around him. Right? Think about it. But the psalm isn't just talking about theoretical atheists, though they qualify. The psalm is really talking about practical atheists, functional atheists. People who believe there's a God, maybe, but they live like there is no God. Kind of unpacks it a little earlier in the psalms, in Psalm 10. The wicked don't care about God. In their pride, they think God doesn't matter. They just blow them off. And if there really is a God, they're fools, right? Verse 11, the wicked think God isn't watching us. He's closed his eyes. He won't see what we do. And if there really is a God and God is omniscient and God cares how he sees us live, they're fools. 
Verse 13, why do the wicked get away despising God? They think God will never call me to account. I'm not scared of God. And if there will be a day when every one of us stands before an all-powerful, perfectly holy, perfectly just God, that's stupid, guys. On the other hand, if there is no God, if there's no God, it'd be foolish to wrap your life around an imaginary friend, right? I mean, if there is no God, why wouldn't I get to choose what's right and wrong for me, irrespective of what you think is right and wrong? If there is no God, why wouldn't I make it my goal to get through life with as much pleasure and as little pain as I can, irrespective of what my quest for happiness might do to you? If there is no God, why would I waste my time, my money, and my energy on something as foolish as church? It's foolish. In fact, the Apostle Paul pretty much says it just like that. He says, if there's no God, guys, and if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then my being up here today preaching is stupid, and you're hoping Jesus is worthless, he says. He says, if there's no God and God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then all of the crappy stuff that you've done, the stupid things that you've said, the people that you've hurt, the vile thoughts that you've allowed to fester in your minds and your hearts, well, live with it. Truth is, Paul says, we're the most pitiful people in the world if there is no God. And God didn't raise Jesus from the dead. There really is no Savior and Lord. We are fools. Bottom line, guys, the options cannot be more opposite. One set of us is a set of fools. Either we are or they are. If there really is a God, then pretty much the apex of foolishness would be to live as if there's not. And if there really is no God, perhaps the apex of foolishness would be to wrap your life around a delusion of one. So here it is. The stakes are that high. If the stakes are that high, why doesn't God, if he really is there, why won't he prove himself to me, to you? Why couldn't he just settle it once and for all, beyond a shadow of a doubt? Why would God require a leap of faith at all? I mean, that's a question both theists and atheists ask, right? Prove it, God. Prove it, Jesus follower. Now, I told you last week that whichever side you take is going to require a leap of faith. I cannot prove to you that there is a God, and you cannot prove to me that there is not. Well, why not? If there really is a God and choosing for him or against him is the most important decision anyone will ever have to make, couldn't God, if he really is all powerful and all smart, prove himself to you and to me personally? I think it'd be an easy thing for the creator of everything to do. Wouldn't you? I mean, people have all these questions. If there's a creator God, who created him? We'll talk about that one next week. Or if this God is so good, why is this world so messed up? Apparently, if there is a God, he's either not that good or not that smart or not that interested, it seems to some. We'll tackle that one too in a few weeks. But for right here, right now, I want to focus on this question. If there is a God, why doesn't he show himself? Again. Some of you guys are like, well, he did, dork. Who Jesus was, what Jesus did. And I get that. 
people are still like, why won't he show himself to me? Why won't he prove himself to me? If I'm supposed to wrap my life around God, why does he require that I take a leap of faith at all? Don't you wish sometimes that God would prove himself? Haven't you asked him at some point, in some way? About 200 years ago, there was an incredibly smart Danish philosopher, theologian, and poet by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. People still ponder what he wrote, including a fascinating little parable. Here is his parable. Here's what Kierkegaard said. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. This king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush any opponent. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? Because in a way, an odd way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he just brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, certainly she wouldn't resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? Now, she'd say she loved him, of course, but would she really? Or would she actually live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life that she'd left behind? Would she actually be happy at his side? How could he know for sure? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving bright banners, would overwhelm her. He didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross that gulf between them. For it is only in love that an unequal can be made equal. So the king, convinced that he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, he resolved to descend to her. So he clothed himself as a beggar, and he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him, which was not a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. Hmm. Well, suppose there was a God who created someone special, someone in his own image, with the capacity to love him back. Now this God was like no other wannabe God. He was omnipotent in power. He had the strength to crush any who rejected or opposed him. And yet for some amazing reason, this amazing God was melted by love for this humble creature, go figure, who bore his image and thus had the capacity to love him back. How could this God declare his love for us? Because in an odd sort of way, his immensity tied his hands. If he simply swept us into his paradise, showered us with whatever our hearts desired, we surely would not resist even if we wanted to. For no one who sees this God as he really is would dare resist him. But would we love him? Because that's what God really wants, right? 
Now, we would tell him we love him, of course. But would we really love him and not just the stuff that he lavishes on us? Would we actually really fear him, nursing a private grief for the freedom that we'd left behind? Would we actually be happy, not with the stuff that he gives us, but with him? How could he know for sure? Because if he swept in, flanked by these ethereal, supernatural warriors, any one of whom could have crushed us like bugs without trying, and overwhelm us. And he didn't want cringing subjects. He wants us to love him back. He wants to share himself, to do life with a though creature, one who could actually love his creator. So the king, convinced that he could not elevate us without crushing our freedom, knowing that without that freedom there can be no real love, he resolved to descend to us, though he was actually God himself, the Bible says. Jesus didn't consider it necessary to hang on to all the trappings of God. Instead, he clothed himself as a beggar, becoming one of us and proved God's love by dying for us. And God proved it to be true by raising him from the dead. So preserving our freedom, God has given us enough to accept him as our God, our Savior and Lord, if we are willing. But not so much that we have no choice but to accept him as our God, our Savior and Lord. If it is the biggest decision for every man, woman, child, everywhere for all of time, why doesn't this creator God prove himself to us? Well, he kind of did when he raised Jesus from the dead. And he kind of does in a myriad of ways, which we're going to be exploring over the next couple months. But not so overwhelmingly that you have to choose him that you have to love him back. Not so overwhelmingly that he strips you of your freedom because without freedom, there is no real love. And listen, guys, God wants our love even more than he wants our obedience. Did you hear that? God wants our love even more than he wants our obedience. So here's one option. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, no. Hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine there are no countries. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion. Well, that's one option. Here's the other. I can only imagine what it'll be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me.